Uh, man, I have been chomping at the bit. Uh, it's been two weeks since I got to preach. I thank you for being a church that allowed Grace and I to get away for a little bit. We went to a church planters conference that uh, our SIN network, which is a part of the North American Mission Board, uh, uh, puts on uh, uh, each year. And so we were able to, to get away together, uh, took our kids to my mother-in-law's uh, house, and it was just me and Grace, and we got away for, for a week. And so I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity just to go and to be poured into and to be refreshed. Now, I found it very strange, however, that nobody really called to check and see how I was when I got back until about 6.30 last night. And then all of a sudden, there were a lot of people that wanted to know how I was doing. And there was one thing all of those individuals had in common. They all happened to be Oklahoma State Cowboy fans. Checking on their pastor, just seeing how their pastor was doing. Thought it was very kind and very nice of all of them. Uh, checking on me as my beloved Longhorns uh, lost last night. I'm sure it was you really wanted to know how I was doing and had nothing to do with the football game. So it is good to be back. Uh, we're going to continue on in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're on the, the, the downhill slope of the book of Revelation. In fact, we've been laying groundwork to get to what the heart of the book of Revelation is really all about, and that is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, the thing about the book of Revelation is it has more references and more quotes uh, from the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. And really what you have is you have two branches of uh, theology when you look at uh, Scripture. You have biblical theology and you have systematic theology. Systematic theology is looking at the parts that comprise the whole. Biblical theology is looking at the whole. It's looking at the major themes that run through the 66 books of the Bible and how they're all blended together because they have ultimately one author and his name is God Almighty, the true and living holy triune God. Now, Revelation is very vital for us in various disciplines of systematic theology, but it is crucial for us in biblical theology because it ties up a lot of the loose ends that are still remaining throughout the other 65 books that God has introduced various themes and prophesied about how things will come to an end. And so what we find in the book of Revelation is we start to see the consummation or the tying up of these loose ends. And so for for us to understand where we are in the book of Revelation and the subsequent chapters that are going to come over the next four weeks, we, meet, we, we really need to go back to where one of those threads uh, was, was first uh, laid, where, where, where it began, and that's Genesis 3, 6 through 13. So if you're taking notes, Genesis 3, 6 through 13 should be there on, on your notes. And God's word says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That is an important phrase, because we will see that that is a part of the thread that goes all throughout Scripture. Desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now, re remember that we see in Genesis 2, or excuse me, in Genesis 1, that they were naked and unashamed. Uh, or Genesis 2, we see that they are naked and unashamed. But here it says that they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave, me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fr uh, fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, in, in just this passage of Scripture, we're introduced to something that is a key theme that runs all throughout the course of uh, uh, Scripture. And that is this. There is an equation between nakedness and shame. 
So we see in Genesis 2 that they were naked and unashamed, but in the fall, we see that there is a realization of this nakedness, and it was never meant to be shameful, but now they have this sense of shame, they have this sense of, of guilt, and in this passage of Scripture, we see we see individuals hiding from, from God because of their shame. We see a guilt that has been incurred. We, we see that uh, there is a relational God that that is pursuing a now broken relationship with his creation. And we see that there is fear that is introduced into their lives and that they are hiding from God, trying to cover their guilt and their shame by their own means and by their own power and by their own strength. That we'll see that played out all throughout Scripture. We see that played out in our lives. We see that played out in the lives of individuals all around us. That because of this sense of guilt and shame, we try to hide from God or we try to cover our sin, we try to cover our guilt, we try to cover our shame in our own power, our own wisdom, and our own strength. And what God will say is that is absolute folly. Because we see in Genesis 3, as it ends, God provides coverings for Adam and Eve himself. And he does so by uh, the, the death of animals because he, to give the coverings to them, there had to be shedding of blood, right? There is no remission of sh uh, sin without the shedding of blood. And so uh, real quickly, if you're taking notes, I don't want to stay on this point very long. Uh, we're going to look at this when we get to Revelation 21. But there were four things that were lost in the fall and four things that were gained in the fall. The four things lost in the fall, we lost peace. There, there was no longer a peace amongst Adam and Eve. You see how quick he was to throw her under the bus, right? It's this woman you gave me. She did it. And she was quick to put it right back on the tempter instead of taking ownership for herself. There's peace broken amongst each other. There's peace broken with God. There's peace broken with creation. Proximity. Uh, the proximity, God would, would come and dwell amongst them and walk with them in the cool of the day. But we'll see in Genesis that they are removed from the garden. And, and, and that's why when he chose the tabernacle in the wilderness and his Shekinah glory would be in the Holy of Holies, it was such a profound thing because God had now come to dwell back with, with, with man in a temporary way in which he would ultimately do as we'll see in Revelation 21. So proximity, we feel that distance personhood identity was lost in the fall we lost our identity we lost who we were and what it meant to be an image bearer of God Almighty we also lost our purpose we were created to be stewards over God's creation we were made just a little lower than the angels and we were called to be good stewards of what God good managers of what God had blessed us with isn't it interesting that, especially in men, when we introduce ourselves, when you meet somebody for the very first time, and it's kind of that awkward time where you're just standing with that other dude, you know, the, the ladies don't have as much uh, of a difficulty sometimes to, to, to chat, but you're kind of standing there, and you're standing with that other dude, and it's kind of like, okay, I got to say something because this is getting really awkward. What do we typically ask? Hey, so what do you do? That's our identity. We, we wrap our identity up in, in that. Uh, oftentimes, lady, you wrap, ladies, you wrap your identity up either in your career or, or your family. But really, our identity is not to be found in our career. It's not to be found in our family. It's not to be found in any kind of financial uh, uh, security or any kind of system uh, whatsoever that the world uh, offers us. Our identity is found in God. Our identity is found in the fact that we are image bearers of God Almighty. And all of that was lost in the fall. All of that was lost. And it was because man rebelled against God and thought that man could be uh, equal to or make a better God. And so what we see in Revelation is we see the judgment of God is rightfully deserved because he is righteous and we are rebellious. But he makes a way because he is a gracious God. Now, there are four things that are gained in the fall. We gained a sin nature. So we weren't, we weren't created with a sin nature. Everything was perfect. We were created in, in innocence. But through our rebellion, through Adam and Eve's rebellion, him as the figurehead, uh, the federal head of mankind, now we have a sin nature. We also incurred shame. 
We see that in, in the sense that they were once naked and unashamed, and now they're, they're hiding from, from God. We, we incurred guilt, and we also incurred fear. It's not long into the creation account when fear is introduced into the lives of God's creation. So with that understanding and that, that framework, we see in the book of Revelation that God is coming to the culmination of pursuing after those that had rebelled against him. That he is writing and fixing that which is broken. And he is graciously for all of these millennia been waiting and calling out through the proclamation of the gospel for individuals to repent of their sin and to come to him in faith. And so today we find ourselves in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. We're going to try to tackle two chapters today. And I'm going to try to do it in somewhat of a timely manner. I heard y'all got out early the last couple of weeks. I'm back. Okay. So, I hope you got a lot of ink in your pen, okay, and a Snickers in your pocket. Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 are really looking at two different parts. Again, Revelation very rarely goes chronologically. It jumps all around and it zooms in and looks at a certain aspect of what has already been presented. Remember... Three weeks ago, we looked at the seven bowls of judgment being poured out by God Almighty. And here, what we will find is that in verse 17 or verse 1 of chapter 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And 17 and 18 really are talking about what is referred to in verse 5 of chapter 17, Mystery Babylon, or the great prostitute, or the great harlot. 17 and 18 is talking about that world system, it's talking about that, that kingdom that the Antichrist is presiding over. And it has certain aspects, like any kingdom would have, it has certain aspects. It has a religious aspect. There will be one world religion. It has a religious aspect. It has a socioeconomic aspect where there is a one world economy. It has a political aspect where there's a one world government. But it has a military aspect. And we'll see that in chapter 17 and 18, God is going to deal first with the religious aspect. And then in chapter 18, he's going to deal with the socioeconomic and political aspect. And then in chapter 19, he's going to deal with the military aspect upon Christ's return. Now, when we look at this, the mentioning of this kingdom as Babylon, as mystery Babylon, it has a very important aspect in the fact that it is named that. In fact, what we see and has continued on is what I call Babylonianism. Babylonianism is something that has been perpetrated uh, a long time after what we see happen in the land of Shinar, which is also known as Babylon, in Genesis 11. So we're going to jump into Genesis 11 here for just a second, in just a second. But let me give you a little bit of an overview of 17 and 18. Break down a few of those aspects. Lay a groundwork uh, with a 30,000-foot overview of 17 and 18. And then I want to jump in and I want to talk about Babylonianism and how it affects us today. And then I want to give you some application for you to apply to your life here and now. So chapter 17 and chapter 18, some individuals believe that it's talking about the same event. I think it's talking about two different events. Now, the reason why they say 17 and 18 is talking about the same city, same event, is because it's, the, the same description is used for both of how they are clothed. Uh, the name is used for both. They're called Babylon the Great. Uh, there are other aspects of this that they would look at and say, okay, this is talking about the same event. But I believe this is talking about two separate events. It may even be talking about two separate cities, one that is a religious hub and one that is an economic and political hub. Now, I believe that the political economic hub, uh, hub may very well be a, a truly literal rebuilt Babylon in the land that is modern-day Iraq. 
I'm not dogmatic on that. No, you don't need to be dogmatic on the specific location. But 17 is dealing with the religious aspect of Babylon, uh, which is the Antichrist kingdom that he sits up during, sets up during the Great Tribulation. And 18 is the economic. Now, notice that in 17, that there are 10 kings... Uh, we get to reading about these, these 10 kings in, in, in verse 12 and, and 13 and 15. But in verse 16 it, or in verse 15, it talks about how they plot against, uh, they hate, and they make desolate uh, this Babylon, this religious aspect of Babylon. But in 18, it says that they actually mourn the destruction of Babylon. Uh, in one, uh, they plot the ruin of the religious aspect. Uh, in, in 18, they actually mourn and lament its destruction. In 17, the 10 kings actually destroyed the religious arm of Babylon. And in chapter 18, God destroys the economic. So I believe that these are talking about two separate entities within the same kingdom. Now, we're introduced to uh, a woman known as the great prostitute. And John, who's carried away in the spirit to a wilderness, as we read in verse 3, says that he saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Now, it says that this golden cup is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Scripture will always talk about sexual immorality in the sense of idolatry. That, that Israel is playing the role of the prostitute by, by chasing after all of these false idols. So this idea of sexual immorality that this woman associated with is talking about religious infidelity to the one and true and only God. It is talking about idolatry. It is talking about the worship of false gods. And we see that this woman is drunk in verse 6 with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So she persecutes believers. Now we're introduced back to, uh, in verse 8, the beast. Now this is the Antichrist. Now remember it says that he was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. This is talking about uh, either um, the literal death of the Antichrist and the resurrection of the Antichrist. Uh, I don't believe Satan has that power. I think it's going to be more of a de demonic deception uh, that, that he dies and that he's brought back to life. Uh, but that is what this is referring to is the Antichrist. And then it refers to the seven kings that this Antichrist is associated with, five of whom are fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. This is talking about the seven world empires that have ruled over the entire world. Five, by the time that John has written this, have already uh, been in power and have gone. Uh, so you have the Egyptian Empire, the, uh, the, the Assyrian uh, Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. Those had already come. So five were. One is, that's the Roman Empire. When John is writing at this time, Rome is in control of the entire world. And then there is one that is not yet. And that is the empire that the Antichrist will rule over in the time of the Great Tribulation. In verse 11, it says, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. In other words, there's going to come a time that the Antichrist is going to come out of the seventh kingdom, and basically he's going to set himself up as God himself in the, the temple and in the world, and he will require all worship to be given to him. Verse 12 tells us about ten horns, and these are ten kings. And it says they have not yet received royal power, so they haven't existed uh, uh, yet, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, with that in mind, I really want to zero in on this aspect of why it is referred to, why this kingdom is referred to as Babylon. And for us to truly understand what Babylonianism is and how it affects your life in Coweta, America today, we really need to go back to Genesis 11. 
In Genesis 11, if you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, individuals after the flood of Noah and the repopulation of the earth were called to spread across the face of the earth. They were commanded by God, their creator, to spread across the face of the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And in verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 11, we read this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Uh, Anytime you read about the land of Shinar, it's talking about Babylon. In the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see what is at the heart of these individuals that are building this tower, this tower of Babel, this tower of Babylon? We see that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to elevate themselves up to a position of God, and they're going to do it by their own power and their own strength. And this is at play in the lives of individuals to this very day and has been ever since the fall. But we see a picture of this in its full, um, in, in its full embodiment here at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man, all one language, or the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. Now at the very heart of Babylonianism is the idea of self-elevation, self-reliance, and putting oneself in the position of God. Now in Revelation 17, we see that this kingdom that the Antichrist is going to rule over is referred to as Babylon. You see, after the Tower of Babel, Babylonianism continued to spread. And all of the isms of this world is nothing more than Babylonianism. Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witness, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. Listen, all of those are different names for Babylonianism where it says, uh, in your own power and your own strength and by your own works and by your own might, you can work your way to God. that's, That's at the very heart of it. And it's something that is still at play today. In fact, there's this uh, famous painting by a man named Peter Bruegel that is a picture of the the Tower of of Babel. This is is his rendering of the Tower of Babel. Remember, God confused their language, and so they, they left off the building of the Tower of Babel, so they didn't complete it. So the Tower of Babel is always pictured symbolically in imagery to not have its top finished, that they weren't ever, ever to accomplish what it is that they desired to accomplish. Now, this kingdom that the Antichrist will rule over, many scholars say it will be a a born again, it will be a rebirth of the Roman Empire, and that many of the ten nations that will comprise it are European in their geography. Now, I find it very interesting that the parliamentary building of the European Union in Strasbourg, France, was designed to look exactly like this painting. They left off the top, and they didn't complete the side because it was based off of Peter Bugel's painting of the Tower of Babel. Now, uh, we see a, a poster that was created to, to uh, Christian or for the coming of that, this is an actual poster that they used where they took the picture of the Tower of Babel, and down here it says, Europe, many tongues, one voice, to play off of the fact that we are undoing what God has done in the creation of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now, outside of the building, of uh, uh, the EU building in Strasbourg, France, you will see this statue. 
And this statue is a picture of a woman that sits atop of a beast. In Revelation 17, we read about this woman, this religious arm of uh, Babylonianism that is sitting atop of a beast. This is a, a symbol that Europe has really adopted. Uh, it is a symbol that they have all throughout various countries and various places. Now, they say that what it means, it is this, the Greek mythology story of Europa. Europa was uh, this beautiful woman that Zeus wanted uh, to, to have sexually, uh, but he was afraid of what his wife would say, and so he made himself into the form of a bull and went into a field one day, and Europa saw him and came over to him, and then he abducted her, swam to the island of Greek, uh, Crete with her on uh, his back, and, and raped her and impregnated her. A very strange thing to have as a part of this kind of symbolism of your country, but that's where the name Europe uh, supposedly has come from. The Greek two euro on a coin that is in circulation today is a picture of the woman that is on top of the beast. Uh, in the Commonwealth Games of 2022 that just happened, the Commonwealth Games are uh, Britain and Australia and a lot of the European countries and uh, other uh, countries, about, I think, 40-something countries come together. In the, the opening ceremony, at the very heart of the opening ceremony, the big production was a woman on top of a beast, 2022. It is something that is infused into what they do all the time. It's, it's everywhere. This picture of a woman sitting on top of a beast is something that they put forward all the time. Now, before you think I've gone too red string on you, before you think I've gone too crazy, well, I, I, all I'm drawing your attention to is the fact that this idea of Babylonianism is alive and well today. You can piece these things together, right? Like, you don't need to go home. You don't need to build a bat cave. You don't need to go home, you know what I mean, and start digging shelters and stuff in, in your backyard. You don't, you don't need to do that. Le ladies, right, if he's, if he's going out and he's bringing a backhoe for some reason, call me, okay? We, we don't need to do that. Because God wins. That's the whole premise of the book of Revelation. Is that it doesn't matter what these individuals do. It doesn't matter about the plots and the plans and the schemes of Satan. He is a defeated enemy. His head has been crushed underneath the foot of Jesus Christ. And his end is the hellfire that awaits him. And for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our end is the eternal kingdom of God Almighty where all sin is removed. Amen? Amen. But Babylonianism is something that is alive and well today. Babylonianism, if you're taking notes, is clothed in worship that rejects God's promises, that rebels against God's commands, and refuses God's grace. You look at any false religion, and they are going to reject the promises of God. They're going to rebel against God's commands and refuse God's grace because they're all works-based uh, systems of salvation. Now, notice this. This is something that is very interesting. In Genesis 11, in the building of the Tower of Babel, it says that they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, bitumen is found in only two other places in Scripture. Bitumen is found when uh, Abraham, uh, Abraham rescues Lot and some of the armies of the five kings start to flee and they fall into tar pits. They fall into pits of bitumen. The only other place that this uh, substance or this word is used is in reference to the basket that Moses is placed into and put into the waters. And what it was, it was a sealant to prevent water from getting in. Now, God had already promised he was never going to send another worldwide flood. But here they are building something to elevate. If a flood is going to come, you want to get to as much high ground as you possibly can, and you want to prevent water from getting into where you are. So here they are building in a way saying that I don't trust God's promise that he's not going to flood this world again, so we're going to get as high as we possibly can, and we're going to keep out water as best as we possibly can. 
God had told them to spread over the face of the earth, and they said, nope, let's gather together, and we're just going to stay right here, and we'll build a tower up to ourselves. So they uh, rebelled against God's command, and they tried to build a tower up in their own name to get onto the level of God in their own strength, and so they refused God's grace. But Babylonianism is not only clothed in worship. Babylonianism is clothed in wealth that focuses on self, that falsely secures and flees suddenly. It's, it's clothed in wealth that focuses on self, that falsely secures and flees suddenly. We see in chapter 18, we see this reliance upon this economic system. We see these merchants, we see these kings, we see these individuals who have made themselves wealthy at the expense of others re, uh, lamenting the destruction of the economic arm of this Babylonian system. So Babylonianism is very much uh, focused in on worldly wealth. And it's a wealth that is to elevate one's self. And it falsely secures. It gives this false sense of security. In chapter 18, at the very end of verse 6, uh, 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 Chapter 18, verse 18, it says, what city was like the great city? What city was like this city? What city had this, uh, uh, this ability? What city had these riches? And so we see that in Babylonianism, there's this focus on self. It's not about uh, being blessed by God so you can be a blessing to others. It's about getting as much as you possibly can for yourself and elevating yourself. And so many people worship at the altar of that. They work to where they neglect their family. They, they work thinking that uh, an amount of financial money will bring them peace and will bring them joy and will bring them happiness. But it flees suddenly. It, four times in verse 8, 9, 17, and 19 of chapter 18, it says that this uh, economic system, uh, this city of economic prowess uh, in chapter 18 is destroyed in a single hour. That when God brings judgment upon it, he brings it in a single hour. That all of the work they did to accumulate all of these things in one hour, it was taken from them. And when you try to put your identity into an, a, a financial amount of money that can, that can leave you in, in a moment's notice, you've leaned the ladder of your life up against the wrong building. It can flee suddenly. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, what did Jesus say when he returned? It's going to be like in the days of Noah. And what are people going to be doing? They're going to be eating. They're going to be drinking. They're going to be marrying. It's just going to be a time where they, they think to themselves that, that, that all is well. It says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is, this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So many of us are just building bigger barns, foolishly thinking that we can cover our shame and our guilt and our brokenness by achieving greater financial stability. When the truth of the matter is that stability that you think you're achieving is nothing more than a sand pit that you're building your life upon. And it will not withstand the storm of life when it comes. Now, Babylonianism is not just clothed in worship. It's not just clothed in wealth. But really, at the very heart of it, or the root of those two branches, is the fact that Babylonianism is clothed in wisdom. Babylonianism is clothed in wisdom that relies on self, rejects scripture, and reverses standards. So at the heart of this false worldly religion... At the heart of this false worldly uh, uh, accumulation of wealth lays the root of wisdom that says this is the actual proper thing that we should be dedicating our lives to. And it's a reliance upon self. It's a reliance upon us to understand how we are to live our lives. 
It's a reliance upon us to work our way to God Almighty. It's a reliance upon us to find security and peace and happiness in this world through financial gain. Now, listen to me. God is not against you having money. I've heard this said, and I think it's a very wise statement. God is not against you having money. He's against money having you. And there's a thin line that individuals walk before they venture over into the side where money now has you. And you find your joy and your happiness and your pleasure over an amount of money that you have in your bank account. Only to find out when you achieve that, that it really didn't bring you the joy or the happiness that you thought it would in the first place. So then you get into that cycle of, well, maybe just a little bit more. And maybe just a little bit more. And maybe just a little bit more. But Babylonianism is clothed in wisdom that relies on self. It rejects scripture. So it rejects what this says. We're not going to live our lives according to this. That is a worldly and a false wisdom. And it reverses the standards of what God has set up ultimately to the point where, as Isaiah 5.20 says, they start to call evil good and good evil Darkness they replace for light, and light they replace for darkness. They replace bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. There's a reversal of the standards of how God has set things up, and individuals then reject that and set up their own standards, but man's standards are always in opposition to God's standards. And it never brings us the peace, the joy, or the happiness, or the contentment that we're looking for. And if we're all honest with ourselves in this room right now, you And your honesty would say, when I live my life according to God's word, there is blessing and there is joy and there is peace despite the circumstances that are around me. But it's when I venture outside of the boundaries that God has set for me in his word that I start to really experience the brokenness and the pain and the suffering of this world. If we're all honest with ourselves, we would acknowledge that the ways of the world do not work. They don't bring us joy, they don't bring us peace, they don't bring us happiness, they don't bring us contentment, and they sure don't bring the removal of our shame or our guilt. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23 says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, if you think living according to the standards of this world is actually wisdom, you need to become a fool because the true wisdom is living your life in accordance to God's word and his will through submission to Jesus Christ and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. 4 verse 19, the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of, uh, of li- or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Proverbs 7, 24 through 27. Proverbs 7 is really th- this picture of wisdom. Uh, um, or Proverbs 8 is this picture of wisdom calling out to individuals to come and glean this, glean this wisdom. And Proverbs 7 really kind of sets up the opposition of that. And there's this woman who personifies this worldly wisdom and these false religions that calls out to an individual to try to sway this man to come into her home and really into this web of deceit that she is laying. In Proverbs 7, 24 through 27, God's word says this, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, talking about worldly wisdom. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. In other words, there's a way or there's wisdom that seems right in the minds of man, but it ultimately leads to death. There is a wisdom of God that leads to life. James 3, 13 through 18, God's word says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? But his good conduct, let him, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In other words, any wisdom or anything that is viewed as wisdom that is apart from God's holy word, it is earthly, unspiritual, and ultimately it is demonic, and it will ruin your life. 
and it will lead you straight into the very depths of hell, separated from God for all of eternity. Verse 16 of James 3 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I want you to notice something real quick in, in James 3.17. You can go back and look at this. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. See, worldly wisdom will always try to flip that and say uh, true wisdom is something that, that will bring peace. It doesn't have to be pure. You can debate whether or not it's pure after whether or not it brings peace. In other words, it's the message of tolerance. Well, you don't want to upset anybody, do you? You don't want to make anybody. Some of what is held in here, if you proclaim that to be God's word, if you draw those boundary lines and call everybody that is created by God Almighty, which is all of us to live within that, you may offend somebody. So that, that can't be true wisdom because true wisdom is peaceable and then pure. But that's not what God's word says. It says true wisdom is pure. In other words, it is pure truth. It doesn't matter if it offends you. Truth doesn't care if it offends you. Truth will not be swayed. Truth will not move. And that's what makes it so potent for us to build our lives upon. And that's why Jesus Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't move me. You can't reshape me. You can't redefine me. You can't reconfigure me. I am who I am. And you cannot change that. And so you either have to decide, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he a legend? Or is he Lord? And if you decide that he is Lord, then you need to bow down in humble repentance and place your faith and trust in him and serve him all the days of your life. There are no other options. He can't be Lord and a good suggestion. He is Lord and your life is fully committed to him. Or he's no Lord to you at all. See this reality that first wisdom is pure and then it is feasible. Listen, one day it will bring peace to all those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And he ultimately is our peace. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Boy, we have a lot of them. They all have Facebook pages. <laughs> Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, right? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ is our wisdom. You want to be wise? Follow Christ. You want to be wise? Model and conform to the image of Christ Jesus. That ultimately is godly wisdom. Christ Jesus is the personification of wisdom. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. He is our righteousness. And so, therefore, we boast in nothing but Christ, for he and he alone are all those things to us. Amen? Now, real quickly, nakedness equals shame and clothing equals honor. So, there's this thread that runs all the way from Genesis 3 that speaks to the fact that nakedness equates to shame and clothing equates to honor. You, you think back to, to Noah when he was laying naked in shame. His two brothers backed into the tent and they 
covered him. You, you think about uh, uh, Jacob. Uh, he loved his son Joseph uh, to the point that he robed him. He put a, a, a covering over him of this beautiful cover. You think about in the book of Esther. Uh, when Haman wanted to know how the king would honor somebody who honored him greatly, what did the king say? The king could have done anything. He said, place uh, my royal robe upon him and parade him through the streets. Cover him with my robe, and that is the greatest honor that the king can give to this individual. Uh, we, we see in the, the story of the prodigal son, when he comes to his senses and he comes back out of the filth of the world that he was living in and his father greets him, what is the first thing that his father does? Go and get the, the, the greatest robe. Go and get my finest robe and drape it over him. In other words, cover his shame. The older brother wasn't so mad about the party being given. It was a, he was mad about the fact that he brought great shame on our family, and you're just going to do and cover that shame as if he didn't bring shame upon our name? And that's exactly what God does for each and every one of us. Listen, in the Western culture, we think more in terms of guilt and innocence. But really, outside of the Western culture, all other cultures think in terms of shame and honor. That their actions bring shame to themselves. But listen, Christ didn't just die on the cross to remove our guilt. He died on our cross to remove our shame. That's why Romans 8.1 says, Now there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has covered our nakedness. He has covered our rebellion with his righteousness, forgiven us of our sins, and adopted us into his forever family of God Almighty. Philippians 3, 18 through 19 says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, notice what he's going to associate these enemies with. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, earthly wisdom. And they glory in their shame. Do we not live in a culture that glories in its shame? Years ago, a man named Wilt Chamberlain wrote a book, and in it, he basically bragged that he slept with over 1,000 women, and people applauded him. What a man. Glory in our shame. The other day, I was at a stoplight here on Highway 51 behind a car with some of the most vile stickers on the back window that you could think of with all kinds of language and all kinds of different things that are just glory in our, we, we don't try to hide it anymore. Because we've called good evil and evil good. We glory in our shame. Reminds me of a story that I read when I was a kid. The emperor's new clothes. You remember this story? It's an emperor. He, he loved to dress the most luxuriously and extravagantly that he possibly could. And two swindlers came into town one day. And they told the king that they could make clothing that fit so perfectly and was so light and so beautiful that only those individuals that were wise enough could see it. And that only those that were in their proper position assigned to them by the king could see the clothes. So they brought all of this gold and this this great fabric, and they start to work on, on this. But they're really not doing anything. They've taken all the gold and all the fabric, and they put it in their bags, and they, they're at this weaver's beam, and they're, they're, they're acting as if they're, they're making this. And the king sends in one of his most wise counsels. And that counselor comes in, and he notices, I can't see anything. Does that mean I'm dumb? That mean I'm stupid. That mean I'm not fit for my position. So he was so afraid to acknowledge the fact that he couldn't see it. So he went along with it. Oh, yeah, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Oh, the king's going to love this. He goes out. The king sends in another counselor. He comes in and he's thinking, dear Lord, I can't see anything on this. 
does that mean I'm stupid? Does that mean I'm not wise? Does that mean I'm not fit for this, this position? And it goes on and on to where now the whole, the whole kingdom is in on it because they don't, nobody wants to be viewed as dumb. Nobody wants to be viewed as unwise. And everybody just plays along with it. And finally the king comes in to see it and he can't see nothing. And he thinks, oh my, am I dumb? Am I stupid? Am I unfit to be emperor? So he plays along with it. So the day comes, they're going to have this big royal procession. And they act as if they're dressing him and they're putting on absolutely nothing. In the stories, he's in his underoos. And he walks out of the castle in his Iron Man underoos. And everybody's playing along. Oh, look, so because they don't want to be the one that everybody else that can see thinks, well, you must be too dumb to see it because only wise people can see the clothing. Until a little boy cries out, he ain't got no clothes on. It'd probably be AJ. I know it'd be, it'd be, it'd be little AJ. He ain't got no clothes on. And everybody else, once he made that statement, they all agreed he doesn't have any clothes on. See, the devil has plotted this great scheme that acknowledges that in our sin and brokenness, we're naked before God. But that he has designed for us a way that we can cover our shame, we can cover our guilt, and the world plays along with it because the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are living by worldly wisdom. And nobody wants to admit, I'm naked before God. There's no covering that I have. There's no righteousness that I have. There's nothing that I can do to where I stand before God covering my guilt and my shame. But we all play this game that says if you just are smart enough, if you work hard enough, if you'll just do enough, if you'll come to church enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you'll just serve enough, if you'll give enough, then you can cover your nakedness and shame by your own self-righteousness. And all we're doing is sowing fig leaves together like Adam and Eve did in the garden when God says, you don't have to do that. I provided a covering for you. The game is up. Acknowledge that you are naked. Acknowledge that you don't have anything in your own power, your own strength, and acknowledge that I have provided for you everything that it is that you need in my son, Jesus Christ, and allow him to robe you with your righteousness. Stop playing this game and start living in reality, for God loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for We try to cover our nakedness with false religion, with false wealth, and with false wisdom. And Christ calls to us. He speaks of a parable in Matthew 22, 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And the ones that have been chosen are the ones that dress themselves in the righteousness of Christ. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Are you trying to cover your nakedness and shame by your own power, your own strength? your own wisdom. There's a robe of righteousness that has been extended to you if you will receive it in faith. If you have not done that, I pray in this moment right now you will. Will you bow your heads and your hearts with me?